Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. It's our podcast about food, passion, making a difference in the world, and many issues that relate to that, uh, including poverty, including government, including ways people can get involved in making a difference. Uh, our guest today is somebody who's done basically all of that. Uh, Max Steyer is the founding president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service. We were introduced to each other. It must have been 21 or so years ago, Max, because you were just starting out by a mutual friend named Joel Fleischman, who's a great judge of talent and people. And uh, we got to reconnect just a couple of weeks ago over dinner. So welcome to the podcast. Billy, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, been an honor to get to work with you for so long. And uh, um, I appreciate your incredible service in so many different ways to our country and our planet. Well, you know, Max, when I think about what you've done, um, I've had, uh, I don't know, one job for many years, too many years to count, but uh, you've done so many things that put you just like at the perfect intersection uh, of government and the private sector, the three branches of government. I know that you worked on a congressional staff for Congressman Jim Leach, that you were a clerk for a chief judge of the United States Court of Appeals. Uh, you also were, um, I think, a special litiga litigation counsel to the assistant attorney general and Bingaman at the Department of Justice. And um, you'd actually been at the law firm Williams and Connolly. So you've just got this uh, incredible richness of experience that, um, you know, a lot of people working government for a long time, not everybody has the diversity of of uh, opportunities that that you've had, and it uh, when I look at it, I think like, yeah, of course he created the partnership for public service. Who would know more about it than Max Steyer? But uh, tell us a little bit about your path and about how you how you decided to uh, do what you're doing now, and kind of what led up to it. Well, Billy, I think that the the, the short form of what you, you you said is that I'm old uh, and and been in in. in uh, many places for that reason. No, honestly, I think, you know, as humans, we always look for patterns and our lives look a lot more orderly in retrospect than they, than they do as you live them. Um, I will say that my general philosophy is not to plan my life nor to advise anyone else to do that. Um, I think we live in a world of such enormous contingencies and uncertainties that the best way to create um, a, a, a good future is by taking care of the present. And we tend to want to plan in ways that, um, in fact, don't work out and that actually sub-optimize outcomes. Uh, you create the best future, in my view. You open the most doors um, by focusing on the current um, time you have and, and ensuring that you're doing the most you can in that space. And, and that creates best future opportunity. And that's true in the way I've lived my life. I've never planned for any given job that I've had. In fact, they've all been real surprises uh, as as I've as, as I've uncovered them. Uh, so um, you know, again, as you, as you look at my life in retrospect, you can tell a good story. But I promise you, there was no such story at the outset. Uh, and um, my view is, you you want three things for a good job. Um, clearly, at the at the heart of it is a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, something that justifies your 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 own personal investment of time. Um, second, you want to work with great people. And third, you want to have real responsibility. And again, I think if you have those three things, you will have a, a, a great experience in the job and you will create best future opportunity. Well, let, let's talk about the Partnership for Public Service, because I think of it as, uh, and I'm sure there's lots of uh, on the website, lots of fancy language and, and stuff like that. But I see, I think of it as the premier organization uh, focused on 
making our government and our democracy just plain work, making it effective, making sure people are trained, making sure that there's leadership development uh, so that we get the results from our government uh, that we would want. So I'm going to ask, you'll, you'll describe it way better than I have, but I'm going to ask you to say two things. One is, uh, how do you describe what the Partnership for Public Service does and it's it's become you know it's amazing masks as I mentioned you know we got introduced some more than twenty years ago and it was an idea that was new and then I've watched it over the past twenty years and you've become the key authority uh, on everything from presidential transitions uh, which I saw you quoted in you know uh, every journalistic publication in the country during the the last presidential transition uh, to a whole lot of leadership development and management training opportunities. So I'd love you to both describe what the partnership is and then when did the light bulb go off, off for you? How, what led to you actually creating it? So um, you, you did a perfect job describing what we do. Uh, our mission is, uh, you know, a better government and a stronger democracy. And, you know, the, the short form of it is to say that, you know, we have one tool for collective action as a society. Um, and that's our federal government. And it's the only tool that has the imprimatur uh, of the American people and taxpayer resources behind it. And um, we live in a world in which most people uh, think of when you say federal government, uh, bickering politicians in Washington, when point of fact, um, the government, our government is really um, 2 million in the civil service side, uh, career professionals who um, are doing extraordinary work on every um, issue of imaginable. So plainly, as you know, uh, working on hunger, uh, working on national security, working on environmental uh, um, safety, and, 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 and uh, the list goes on and on and on. Um, and in a world where we face so many metastasizing dangers moving so fast, having an effective government is fundamental to our health uh, safety and welfare. And so, um, you know, it's interesting. There are, I think, 1.5 million nonprofits all focused on critical issues that matter a great deal. And um, without an effective government, none of that else will, will, will work. Uh, so that's our purpose. That's our mission is to help government um, fulfill its, its, its responsibilities to uh, the American public. Um, the interesting thing here is that I mentioned 1.5 million nonprofits. Almost all of them uh, focus exclusively on the policy preferences that they have without investing in ensuring that we actually have that public institution that can execute and implement on the policies that they want in a, in a, in a good way. And so um, that's what we do. We focus first and foremost on people because in a knowledge-based world, that is the most important asset uh, that uh, our government has. Um, you mentioned leadership. You mentioned the transition, which is how our government starts. I mean, that's the accountability mechanism where you have new political teams coming in. And um, in the past, that was done as a Groundhog Day exercise where every new political team came in without having a learning system to understand how to take over the government more effectively. Um, but we also need to have a healthy talent pipeline coming into that government. <clears throat> I will mention today we have just 7% of the federal workforce under the age of 30 I'm sure in your organization that number is quite a bit different. It's over 50% in mine, 
uh, and it's not healthy. We don't have the generational diversity um, that we need in our public sector if it's only 7%. So we, we, we work on a whole range of issues that are all about trying to make our government work better. Um, you also asked me, where did this idea come from? And I'll revert back to my first answer to your question about my life path and planning. And the answer is that um, Joel Fleischman is the answer again. Uh, I did not plan to start the partnership. You're right. Looking backward, it's a natural thing for me to do, but um, it's not what happened for me. I was working at the Department of Housing and Urban Development. I was the deputy general counsel there. I worked to the last second before um, the clock struck and I was no longer employed as a, as a former political appointee. And I made a list of the people who I um, thought the most of and um, started meeting with folks. And I got to talk to 80 people in three weeks. And um, I got five or six removed from where I started from. And one of those uh, persons that uh, I got connected to was Joel Fleischman. And um, through uh, another friend, and he was the one who said, hey, if you were 10 years older, and I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, yeah, I know someone who's been looking you know, for three years for someone to start and run an organization. He connected me to an amazing man named Sam Heyman, who had been looking for three years to try to address his concern, which was that um, young talent was no longer looking at government as a first choice. So anyway, no planning, no strategic insight on my side, other than turning over every rock I can and getting lucky and, and meeting Joel Fleischman, uh, who connected me to Sam and Sam and I hit it off and we were off to the races. T- tell us a little bit about uh, about Sam Heyman and, uh, and where the spark came with him. So, you know, Sam was an extraordinary person. He uh, was a phenomenally successful businessman who got his start uh, post-law school going into government. And, and like he would say, a third of his class, he was a Harvard Law graduate, went into government. He met Bobby Kennedy. Um, he was at the Department of Justice, met Bobby Kennedy like twice in his first year. He stayed in government for five years. And he would always look back at that time as the most fundamental, the most meaningful of his, of his career. Uh, and um, he left because his father passed away and he needed to take over the family business. And he then did, you know, very, very, very well for himself. He always remembered his own personal experience in government. And as a businessman, he said that having an effect of government was fundamental to his success. Government both regulated and supported the work that he did. And having it work right was um, really important to his success. So um, really an interesting person uh, who had that broader vision who then looked at the nonprofit sector and then and realized that this was a a problem that there was uh, you know a huge number of organizations focused on policy, no one focused on this fundamental health of government question, and um, he started talking to lots of folks and and Joel Fleischman started organizing conversations with various experts. He hired a search firm, I think more than one search firm, talked to a bunch of people, and then the story you know finally connected with me, and he committed twenty five million dollars. Uh, to me over five years to start the organization. And um, the, the agreement was I would do a business plan and, 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 and he would provide the resources. Uh, so um, I, I did not realize how extraordinarily lucky I was to be capitalized in that way uh, until unfortunately he passed away unexpectedly. Um, and, and I realized that, uh, you know, having that, 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 that financial support to, to rely on in that way was not the norm. Um, but he 
really um, was, uh, you know, a, a far-sighted individual um, who made a real difference. Well, that, that's an that's an incredible origin story. And then, did you? Uh, I don't know. Did you go home and talk to your family and say, "I've I've got, I've got this little little small project I'm going to work on to." change and improve the entire United States government? Like, what did people say when you told them what you were setting out to do? It's it's almost uh, audaciously ambitious. Well, so what's interesting is, um, as I mentioned, I, I talked literally to 80 people, and this was by far the best offer I felt, the most interesting one to, to, to pursue. And, um, you know, the first thing I did, again, back to people, was I called up one of my colleagues who had, you know, been resting, uh, a guy named Kevin Simpson, um, you know, recuperating from the, the from the very very challenging uh, you know end of administration that we had been through, uh, and asked him to to join me with this, and we um, put together a sort of a concept paper and started interviewing people. Our interview technique was to give them this first draft that we'd written about what we should be doing and ask them to comment on it. And we talked to easily you know over a hundred folks and um, gathered all their thoughts, whether we hired them or not, we, we got their input. And uh, it told us a lot about how they thought and whether we wanted to work with them. But we really then honed the, the strategy for the organization in that process uh, and began building from there. Um, in terms of my uh, family, um, you know, my, my, my wife is a public servant herself. Uh, she's a judge. Um, you know, there was not going to be any argument. In terms of the, the larger world, absolutely, people, you know, were nonplussed by this is an idea. And, um, you know, it, it's not infrequent that I get the comment, you know, that's God's work. Uh, and my response was always, no, no, actually, it's not God's work. It's our work. And if we leave it uh, to, 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 to someone else, uh, we're not going to get it done. Um, and it is uh, interesting, though, all, quite often, certainly people who have been in and around government understand this as a, as a real issue and a real problem. The, the challenge is less getting them to appreciate the value of the work as it is to prioritize it. And uh, that's where we often lose folks, which is um, they'll say, yes, 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 this is important to do, but they won't um, actually in a very busy world ensure that they're spending some consequential time to do something about it. Well, I feel like there's uh, many ways in which you do your work. I mentioned some of them in introducing you leadership development work. Uh, you've got a program called best places to work in the federal government. You've got a call to serve network. We've talked about uh, presidential uh, transitions, or at least we've, we've referenced them. Um, l- let's tick through some of those. And I, and I, I, I'd seen a reference you had made to a, uh, a recent tumultuous presidential transition. I don't know how much you can tell us about that. I think I can imagine what you were talking about. But um, when did you start doing work around presidential transitions? I feel it's one of the things that, uh, that that the partnership is really well known for. In addition to, well, there's many things, but I didn't even mention yet the uh, the Sammies, the Sam, Samuel Heyman Awards for public service. But l- let's start with the, the presidential transitions of which you've become uh, kind of like, as, as, as I said, the preeminent authority. Uh, when did that start and, and where is it now? So um, again, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, there was not a lot of planning involved. I had a colleague na- uh, named Katie Maleg, who in 2007, um, very, very talented woman who's now back in government, actually went to government, came back to us and is now back to government again. She asked me the question, we started in 2001, it's also the origin story. We actually started 
Our first event was on Capitol Hill on September 11th, 2001. And the Capitol Police came in to make us leave. We had Joe Lieberman and Dan Burton co-sponsoring a, a breakfast to, to announce our launch. But that's a whole other story. Um, uh, but we started during the Bush administration. Katie uh, asked me in 2007, looking ahead, smart on her, We've got a transition coming up. You know, how, how are we going to manage that? Is there anything we should be doing? And it was a wise question and one that um, I turned back on her and asked her the question what we should be doing. And we began a process then of trying to understand this process. We all learn as children that, you know, the peaceful transfer of power is what distinguishes us as a country and a gift that the United States gave to the rest of the world. It's peaceful, but it's largely been ugly if you look at the history about it. And, and and that always, obviously, more recently, peaceful. Ugly how? Well, ugly in that um, it's, you think about it, our, our government, again, is the most important entity, probably not just on the planet, but of history. And uh, the, the handover of power is the, the core aspect of our democratic process. And um, historically, campaigns have focused all on campaigns. Um, everyone is is trying to win without thinking about what does governing require. And so it's ugly in that administrations have started without real deep planning or understanding about how to take over the full levers of power. And in our system, we have a very, very large turnover of leaders. So um, in today's numbers, it's 4,000 political appointees that are, are appointed by a new president. And that's like no other democracy by many, 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 many multiples. So um, when I say ugly, the best example of ugly is, frankly, September 11th, um, where the 9-11 Commission itself determined that one of the prime causes of 9-11 was the failure of the Bush administration to get its national security team in place early enough to be able to manage the challenges of the world that 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 we were living in then. And so that's ugly. That's awful um, that, that we put ourselves at risk uh, by, um, by having such a, um, a poor process of the handoff of power. So, you know, what we figured out in the 2008 cycle was that the challenge here was twofold. One, that this was um, a process, as I mentioned earlier, like Groundhog Day. Uh, new political teams did not start with a guidebook with all the prior art on how to take over the government effectively. And that the process itself was designed to make this very difficult for a new administration to make that choice of early and consequential investment in transition planning. And so we've done two things. One, every cycle we've created literally a guidebook on how you do a transition right. We've helped all the teams um, figure out how to structure their organization, what kind of investments they need to make by when, um, on and on and on. And then secondly, um, we've looked at the rules that govern transition and every cycle we've improved them. The most important one uh, occurring um, uh, in that first cycle where what we were able to persuade Congress to do was to move up the date of support for transition planning from uh, the election day, which had been the historical norm to the convention. And the reason why this was important is that it provided political cover for campaigns to start pre-election transition planning at scale without fearing the attacks that might occur around measuring the drapes or 
you know, celebrating early in the end zone or whatever else it might be. So, you know, um, sort of compressing this all, we have created a center for presidential transition. It's a learning system. Every cycle we get smarter in terms of the help we can provide to both incumbent and challenger campaigns and frankly, the career workforce on how to manage this process better. And it all begins at the beginning. So if you start badly, um, you can never really catch up given the shortness of, of the political cycle. And you put our country at risk as 9-11 demonstrated. So that's in, in a nutshell, you know, the kind of work that we see as extremely important. Um, and it's high leverage work. Like you can't, uh, there, there are certain places where an investment can make a very, very big difference. And this is one of them. Well, you know, as you're talking, I, I think I can give testimony to what you're saying, Max, as you're talking, I had a little uh, digression down memory lane and I was remembering in 1992, uh, Bill Clinton had been elected and on inauguration day, January 20th, um, a, a friend of his named Eli Siegel. I don't know if you knew Eli. Yes, I know Eli very well. Amazing, amazing individual. Amazing individual. President Clinton asked Eli to be the head of uh, national service and what ultimately became uh, AmeriCorps. Uh, and uh, Eli called uh, me and a few other folks that we've known each other for a long time. He and I had done some political stuff together. And he said, look, he said, I'd never worked in government before. Uh, can you meet me at the White House on Inauguration Day uh, while the president's at the on the reviewing stand at the parade? Uh, we can go into the White House and we can talk about like what I'm going to do in this job. And, you know, pre 9-11, of course, it's almost unimaginable that you could walk up to the White House and just say, uh, Eli Siegel asked me to meet him and they'd, they would let you in. <laughs> OK, uh, and there's, you know, literally tens of thousands of people on the streets in Pennsylvania Avenue in front of it. And President Clinton is still, you know, looking at the parade. Uh, and I go in and meet Eli. And uh, I, I, first I walk through uh, inadvertently the communications office and there's Ger George Stephanopoulos unpacking boxes. And uh, there's Mark Gearin, who's the communications director, uh, trying to figure out how to turn the three TVs and the, and the console on. And, uh, you know, obviously a wonderful group of incredibly well-intended and talented people, many of whom are my friends, but uh, w without a lot of preparation for what they were going to do when they started. And, uh, you know, there were subsequently a lot of stories about, you know, the early days of the Clinton White House were like college dorm sessions with people up all night talking and stuff like that. But it, uh, it gave me a lasting sense of like, wow, there needs to be a little bit more uh, organization to these transitions. Absolutely. And, and yours is a perfect story um, when you think about it, that the opportunity cost um, is, as you said, you had a lot of missteps at the front end of the administration that did not have to be. And you had that loss of possibility if they had started the planning earlier at scale, knew who the leaders would be for the various organizations, and those folks were building out plans, um, you would be you know, way far ahead. Your, your first year uh, is the most important in terms of getting stuff done. And uh, you know, again, this is, this is on the offense side. And as I mentioned, the def defense side, we live in a dangerous world. So not um, being ready puts us all at risk. And, and that to me is comes to the heart of what our government's about. It's about keeping us safe, that there's a lot more to government that's possible, but without that, none of the other stuff exists. So um, transition is where it begins. Doing transition right or as best as you can is is fundamental. And it, and it was, um, I can't think of a better metaphor than Groundhog Day. Uh, it really was, uh, you know, reinventing the wheel, um, you know, up until, you know, we started our work. And not to say it's been perfected because 
the world changes, the opportunities change. You think about, you know, the last transition the Biden team had to do remotely, uh, crazy stuff. Um, but it's really, really important to get that right. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask about that. And, and I know we have to move on from transitions, but, and there's, and I'm not asking you to tell any tales out of school, but the transition from Trump to Biden contested election uh, pandemic, uh, it must have been extraordinarily challenging. Just give us a flavor for what you were dealing with. No doubt. Um, and there's been, you know, a decent amount written about it. Uh, and obviously, this is, you know, mid pandemic, all kinds of things that are, are again, you know, challenging for our society and, and having, you know, good con- continuity of leadership was essential. Um, and, and, I, and I have to doff my hat, most importantly, at the, you know, the career civil servants that make our government work day in and day out. So, yes, there was chaos. Yes, um, there were choices made that uh, were not, in my view, sufficiently focused on the responsibility of continuity. Um, and, and as I said, a lot of stories written about them, but the unsung hero throughout this, you know, were the career civil servants who made sure that, you know, our, um, our society kept, uh, moving forward, um, you know, whether it was pandemic related or other national security issues or, you know, benefits for Americans on and on and on. Um, you know, we have an incredible asset in our civil service that is, uh, frankly, under, uh, appreciated. Um, and, and it's not, uh, we should not take for granted. Max, your, your elegant and diplomatic, uh, language, uh, re- reminds and reinforces for me that you are fiercely nonpartisan at the partnership for public service. Um, and say a little bit about why that's important. Well, I think, you know, it comes back to the very front end of what you, you had to say. And that is that, um, we are about, you know, our democracy and, uh, it is, it is certainly important. You've, you've, you know, engaged in the, in the Washington world for a long time. And we both know that to get meaningful things done, you have to be nonpartisan. And oftentimes in Washington, it's about being bipartisan. I think this is an issue that's nonpartisan. And to me, the difference is that it, it, you know, it's beyond politics. Um, This is about our democracy. It's about our success as a country. And uh, we need to understand that there are some things that, you know, whether it's the metaphor of a Geneva convention that should be off limits to the partisan wars. This needs to be one of them. Uh, and, um, because it's so fundamental to, to our safety and, and welfare as, as a, as a people and as a country. So, um, yes, we try very, very hard. Does not mean we don't criticize leaders or, or members of, of both parties when they're not doing the things that actually are beneficial to, um, the, an effective government. Um, we, we, bluntly criticized uh, every administration um, along the way. I will say that one distinctive aspect of our voice is we try always to be constructive. It's pretty easy to find problems, um, way, way harder and more useful to identify solutions to those problems. And so, um, you know, we try, and this is, I think, related to our nonpartisanship, um, to be looking for promising practice. It's something that is often missing around government. There's Pretty much everything that should be happening is is happening someplace in our government, but not in enough places. And we don't have the right kind of bright spot um, recognition to to identify and celebrate it. Well, I'm glad you said what you just said, because I was going to ask you, you, you talked about being constructive. And I've noticed there's such a positive uh, aura or 
spin to the way you describe things. So you've got um, the, the the best places to work uh, in the federal government. You've got the uh, Samuel Heyman Service to America uh, Medals Program, uh, the Call to Serve Network. These are all, uh, you know, I, I feel like you in many ways lead by inspiring, uh, which is, I think, a really effective and powerful way to lead. Um, so let's talk about a couple of them. When you, talk, when you say best places to work in the federal government, you don't, you don't just mean being ambassador to Rome, right? <laughs> or ambassador to the Bahamas. No, no. So yeah, that, 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 that's not a bad job, which is empty, I will add though. Um, uh, so the, the reality is that um, if you think about the root causes of, of management challenge in government, one of them is the short-term um, leaders who are not aligned to the long-term needs of the organizations they run. Again, back to the 4,000 political appointees, the average tenure of the Senate confirmed ones, throwing more numbers out, but there are 1,200 of those, um, is just two years. So you have people who um, are incentivized to focus on policy development rather than an announcement, rather than on effective organizations because they're not around long enough to see the fruits of an investment in, in those operational issues. A second root cause of, of, of challenge in our government is the lack of real-time performance information. And, you know, a lot of people talk about, oh, we just need to run our government like a business. Um, there is no business that, one, is as important as our government, and two, that is as difficult to run as our government for, because of all the constraints that are involved. You can't run it like a business. You can use business principles, but there are so many unique challenges. And one of them is that in, in, in business, you're, you're, have a pretty clear metric of you know financial success in government. You're seeking public goods, and so um, much harder to understand and, and measure in real time performance. So our insight, pretty much at the beginning, uh, was that um, a good proxy for performance was the employee's perspective, the employee voice, and we were able very luckily to get a law passed that required every federal agency to conduct an annual employee survey and to make that data public so that we could rate and rank agencies, as you just described, according to what their employees have to say about them um, in, in a best places to work rankings. And it's fascinating. It has had huge impact, not just the, the collection of the information, but the actual ranking. And obviously, US News and many, many other entities have figured this out a while ago. Um, people pay attention to it. And that's really what we wanted to do. We wanted leaders in particular to be held accountable and to pay attention to what their employees had to say about how they were managing. And it's a fascinating, fascinating data set that people could examine the whole of government and its various subparts by looking about what employees have to say. To be clear, this is not about happy employees. This is about uh, engaged employees, effective employees, and good performance. And um, it, it has really made a real difference. Um, not to say we are anywhere to stretch at management nirvana, but it gives people a good sense about what's happening can hold people accountable and a roadmap to, to reform. And the last point I would just say is that inevitably, if you look at what happens in the best places rankings, the vast majority of the employee experience is defined by um, the quality of the leaders there. And if you see an agency drop substantially, it is highly likely that you've seen very poor leadership and the reverse. If you see an agency uh, jump. Uh, one of our board members is Dave Capos, who was at the Patent Trademark Office. He took PTO from near bottom to number one among the subcomponents um, because he was a great leader. And um, that's what we need to see more of in government. And we need to see support for those kinds of investments. 
um, I would say that there's so many different choices. Um, and what's fascinating to me is that if you look NASA, so it's a direct answer to your question is NASA amongst large agencies is number one. Um, but, um, and, and everyone's like, Oh, of course, because space is so incredible. NASA didn't start out as number one. They had incredible leadership in Charlie Bolden for eight years and built a culture, uh, very focused on talent. Um, it's not about space. Every federal agency, if you look at the data, has about the same um, mission excitement and commitment. If you care about housing, you're going to go to HUD. Um, if, you know, if you care about buildings, you're going to go to GSA. If you care about um, the environment, you have a lot of choices in the federal government. Okay. And then in terms of the other thing you just said, Max, and thank you for that. Uh, if, if you want to go find out what employees are saying about their agencies or their departments, well, where does the average person go to find that? So you would go, uh, the best place to go would be our best places ranking. So just best places to work, uh, org. Um, uh, and is just a ton of data there that you can, you can sift through. Um, you know, there's not, as much uh, sort of anecdotal information, you know, my own view in, is, you know, you, you want to actually talk to people, especially people who have worked in a place and left. I think they're the ones that are, are the most uh, honest, most willing to be direct about pluses and minuses. Um, but for the broader, uh, you know, fabric of what's happening in government, definitely bestplacestowork.org. And, um, you know, agencies have much more granular data available to them um, but we don't, we don't get it all. Best places to work, uh, .org. And that's where we'll find the information. Excellent. Uh, we've got, you've got too many cool things going on to fit into one podcast, but I don't want to uh, finish without talking about the, uh, the Sammies, the awards for, uh, public service, uh, which has, um, I feel like become, you know, one of the number one attractions when people, uh, and inspirations when people think about a career, uh, in the, federal government. You're probably going to tell me that it wasn't planned, that it just happened, like so many things in your life. But uh, tell us a little bit about the origin and who some of the uh, award winners have been and what you think the impact's been. Sure. So this is another, um, you know, early idea. We knew we wanted to do something around recognition. And we actually started with um, uh, the Atlantic and um, National Journal and Government Executive. We started this program out with them. David Bradley um, is just, I think, a, a really wonderful leader himself. And, um, you know, one of the early um, desires we had was to share the extraordinary things that are going on in the government with the American people. What we learned in, in developing this program is that we actually have two audiences. One, for sure, as the American people, I mentioned earlier that um, most Americans don't think about um, the career civil servant when they think about the federal government. They think about bickering, you know, folks, politicians in Washington, often Congress. Um, when they learn about these stories about um, civil servants in their communities doing unbelievably meaningful work, their view of government changes very, very substantially. And so one of the projects we're working on now is around rebuilding trust in our government. And a big part of that is trying to get these stories shared in a, in, a, in, a, in a more comprehensive way, getting government to do a better job of it and getting other stakeholders to do that as well. The second audience are those in the federal government themselves. And this is, again, back to best places to work. Um, what we found amongst the various interesting data insights is that by and large, federal employees don't believe that their good work is recognized. And, you know, as parents, we all know that positive reinforcement is much more powerful than negative. There's a whole infrastructure around government to find problem 
inspector generals, often congressional oversight. The media usually looks at the negative. And that creates a risk aversion inside the federal workforce that's very understandable. You're, 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 you're hammered when something goes wrong and there's almost no upside when, it, when something goes right. So our theory is that we need to do a better job of creating a recognition culture in the federal space. Um, our Service to America medals, the Samuel J. Heyman Service to America medals, we named them after Sam after he passed away, um, is, is sort of the flagship effort in that regard. And it's become the Oscars of government service. And they're amazing people. I mean, if you think about uh, the, you know, the Webb Telescope, it's up there because there's an extraordinary public servant who was an amazing manager and made that happen. Incredibly complex project that was behind in all respects, and he turned it around. Um, it's, again, the full gamut of, of action by federal employees from eradicating polio in India to uh, you know, creating the vaccines that we all, or hopefully we all, have taken that of keeping us safe. I mean, the, the, the range of accomplishment is extraordinary and anyone needs to go the serve, you know, service to America medals.org website or our website, our public service.org. And you, you know, it's, it's jaw dropping. We have short videos of, for the winners. Um, and we need these stories told. So take a look and, and be in awe and share the stories with others and, and nominate um, people you know who are doing great things in the federal government. Now, what time of year do you uh, actually present them? So we get two bites of the apples. Um, so we are just completing the nominations now. I think that nominations are closed. We announce the finalists uh, the first week of May. That's Public Service Recognition Week. And we typically will have you know 35 to 40 finalists. Um, to be honest, you really can't distinguish the finalists from the, the winners. They're like all amazing. And they look at each other and none of them believe that they're going to win. This is an aspect of, of personality of government services. They're incredibly modest people, despite their amazing achievements. And then we typically will hold a gala to announce the winners and celebrate them um, in the fall, usually September, October time horizon. But, um, you know, we have over, I think, 700 uh, honorees um uh, from dating back to the beginning. And again, all those stories are up and uh, available on our website. And, you know, we do our best to, to get them out there, but we welcome as much help as we possibly can to to spread the word. Well, and I've seen some of the Macs and they are so inspiring. Now I'm a, a creature of, of government and I think of, you know, government as a as a force for good. But I think uh, whoever you are, whatever your politics are, you'll see these people who have been selfless public servants and you'll really be inspired uh, by their stories. And you're saying for your main website, it's just publicservice.org? Our, so it's someone owns the public service uh, thing and they, they, they want to sell it and we don't want to spend a lot of money to get it. So for 21 years, we, we've been limited to our, O-U-R, publicservice.org. Okay, good, important correction. And then uh, I know we have to wrap up, Max, but is there anybody, is either the partnership or anybody else doing uh, at the state level what uh, you've described the partnership doing at the federal level? So I love your question. In my big dream world, you would have a franchise and not just at the state level, but internationally too. Um, there are uh, inklings of things that are starting. So there's a gentleman who is looking to start something in the state of California. There's someone else who is thinking about starting something in North Carolina. We've helped an organization in Brazil that is up and running and runs a Sammy's-like program. Um, but uh, it makes sense. Like every level of government should have this and um, it, it doesn't. It's The truth is, and you know this so well, 
in the nonprofit sector, you know, you have a double bottom line. You have the mission, which is sometimes relatively easy and you need the resources, the money to make it happen. And, um, you know, the fact of the matter is that people contribute generally to those policy lanes and not to the institutional health of government. This is a new area we've been trying to create a field of giving for um, effective government. And um, I think we're making some headway, but the direct answer to your question is there are some starts and we need more of it. Uh, Max, I am so grateful that you uh, took this time. Uh, This has been a fascinating conversation and uh, I'll uh, kind of, I guess, close where I began and say that um, I'm grateful to Joel Fleischman for introducing me to some of the best wines I've ever tasted and some of the best, some of the best leaders I've ever met. And I would put you at the very top of that list. So uh, it's really been special to have you on Add Passion and Stir. Well, thank you. This has been a great pleasure and uh, back at you. Uh, It's been great knowing you all these years and thank you for the incredible work that you do. Thanks, Max. Please visit adpassionandstir.com. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Share Ad Passion and Stir with a friend and rate the show so that others can find it. Ad Passion and Stir is produced by Paul Woody Whittle's team at District Productive and Johanna Weber of Pop and Awe with support from our team at Share Our Strength in the No Kid Hungry campaign. They include Debbie Shore, Pamela Taylor, Megan Cantrell, and Kelly Griffin. We'll be back in two weeks with more stories of individuals sharing their strength to make a difference in the world. Until then, thanks so much for listening.